0: Colossians chapter 1, uh, written by the Apostle Paul in the first century, just like uh, Edinburgh Castle rises above the mist in Edinburgh on a cold winter's morning, so this passage rises uh, for us uh, in the New Testament because it's is—it's like the Acropolis uh, in the New Testament. It's a passage that stands out for its density and uh, its richness and its profundity, focusing as it does on the uniqueness of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And I'd like to look at this passage this morning for three reasons. Uh, Firstly, I think the passage is helpful to us in responding to the loss of wonder uh, which uh, plagues the Western world. There was a great uh, French psychologist uh, who died a few years ago called Jacques Ellul he was a Christian from a reformed church background and on one occasion uh, he wrote that the three great influences of the 20th century in Western Europe were Marx and Nietzsche and Freud and if you look for a common theme in all of their writings uh, he said it was that they discouraged a positive faith in anything and were the authors to some extent of the cynical spirit which marks much of 20th, as it was, was 21st century man now. So one of the features of the Western world is cynicism. And uh, cynicism doesn't sit well in the same bed with uh, confident faith and trust. And sadly, sometimes even in the life of the Church, people have been affected by this spirit of cynicism in the Western world and ever so slightly lost that sense of wonder At the greatness and the glory uh, of the gospel It can sometimes happen in the life of a Christian If you've experienced a knock in life If a child or a family member has been sick Or you've lost a loved one Or you've been made unemployed Or there are tensions in the family or the church Difficulties in the workplace Ever so subtly can knock a Christian off his or her centeredness uh, In the person of Christ So loss of wonder is a problem And I think this passage Uh, does help to deal with it, as we'll see in a few moments. Another reason I think the passage is important is because uh, it focuses primarily on the uniqueness of Christ and is very relevant, therefore, to the twin uh, hostile uh, viewpoints vis-a-vis the Christian faith of relativism and pluralism in the Western world. Let me just define them briefly. When I'm relativistic, I say that all truth is relative with such a world view or looking, way of looking at the world, experience is king. Uh, the person who is relativistic says, if it works for you, it's okay. The only truth which is absolute is that there is no absolute truth. Now that's the kind of perspective that uh, is held by many people in the Western world today, a relativistic world view. It's quite different from tolerance. Many people in our society claim to be tolerant, but let me define tolerance over against relativism. When I'm tolerant, I say to you, you believe that, I believe this, I think you're wrong, but I accept your right to hold that view. Tolerance is a strong concept. When I'm relativistic, I say, you believe that, I believe this, it doesn't matter. That's the relativistic viewpoint, which infects the way that many in, in the West look at the world. Pluralism is the first cousin, and the view uh, in, of pluralism uh, highlights the view that all ways are equally valid. Many Christians or professing Christians would be surprised to hear that Mahatma Gandhi uh, was uh, someone who held a pluralistic worldview. Because many people I've heard tell me Gandhi was a Christian. But he said this. The need of the moment is not one religion, but mutual respect and tolerance. Truth is not the exclusive property of one scripture. I cannot ascribe divinity to Jesus. For me, he is as divine as Muhammad or Krishna. That's the pluralistic Worldview, and it affects uh, world mission also The view that all ways are equally valid So that's the second reason why this passage is important The third is that I, because I think it answers the four big questions that people ask in life Which are uh, Is anyone there? And if there is, what could he be like if there is a God? Secondly, why are we here? Thirdly, how do we get out of this mess? And fourthly, how do we gain hope in this world? So let's that's, that's then look at this passage insofar as it relates to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and these four key questions that disturb the consciences and the minds of men and women in the world the first, the passage highlights Jesus Christ's uniqueness in terms of his claim to be, to be deity or God come in human form it does this in three little phrases So you need to keep your thinking caps on here and need to keep your eyes on the text of the passage that we're looking at because this is a very tightly argued passage of scripture. So I hope you're well well awake now for the next 25 minutes because it will be a quick ride. In verse 15, the Apostle Paul first of all says that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Now, Roman readers would understand this because in the far-flung Roman Empire... The way that they understood what the image of the, Ro- of the Roman Emperor was like was by seeing his image on the coins of the Roman Empire. So here Paul is making allusions to that. But the, uh, what Paul is hinting at also is that Jesus is not a vague image, image but the exact representation of the invisible God. I remember when my wife and my son and I were living in Paris some years ago in a grand uh, cathedral there, up in, the, uh, 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 up in the ceiling of the cathedral there was beautiful architecture and uh, sculpture and painting but the ceiling was so high that when people came into the cathedral they never looked up, they just looked around and were overcome with what they saw around them so the curator of this particular uh, cathedral had an idea one day he put a gigantic mirror in the, the entry to the doorway as you came into the cathedral So as you entered the cathedral you were hit by this huge mirror Which reflected the glorious architecture and the painting from the ceilings And you could see people recoil in awe and wonder as they were struck by the first time As they saw the painting and the architecture uh, in the ceilings Well in the same way this scripture hints at the fact or teaches That Jesus is the exact representation of God who is invisible He is the visible image of the invisible God. When we see Jesus we see what God is like. I always remember my father saying to me, Lindsay I know what Jesus is like but what is God like? And I said, well dad just look at Jesus in the pages of the New Testament, in the Gospels and as you look at what he did, how he spoke to people, how he treated people how he walked amongst men and women, that is what God is like Jesus came to show us what God is like. He wasn't some dim and distant deity but he came and dwelt and walked and lived amongst us. He's the visible image of the invisible God. Trying to drive it home, Paul says in verse 15, he's the firstborn of all creation. A rather problematical phrase, strange to our Western minds. All it means is he is the Father's heir. It's a title of dignity, a title of rank, priority of rank, that he's the firstborn, that he has first place in creation. But then most strikingly of all perhaps in verse 19 He says that the fullness of God dwells in him And to bring this home more forcibly He repeats the phrase perhaps a little more sharply In the second chapter, verse 9 of this letter When he says the fullness of God dwells in him bodily In other words, he says Jesus is 100% God Now I read a book review yesterday the Times newspaper, just uh, uh, published in Scotland yesterday morning, uh, of the uh, weekend by Karen Armstrong, uh, a liberal theologian, arguing that Jesus never claimed to be God, but actually he did in at least uh, four ways. He claimed, first of all, to be the source, unique source of all truth. Uh, Buddha said on his deathbed, I'm still searching for the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth, the physical embodiment of the truth. Secondly, Jesus alone offered forgiveness of sin. Muhammad says in the Quran, he asked forgiveness of God 70 times a day. Jesus only dished it out. He never apologized, he never said he did anything wrong himself. He called other people to repent, and he offered forgiveness himself. Thirdly, he claimed to be the judge of the world. Who but God can judge the world? In that great moral teaching, in the Sermon on the Mount, towards the end of the sermon, Jesus said, in the end day, I am going to judge people, not on the basis of what they've done, on the ba- but rather on the basis of whether they have known me or not. For he said, many people will come to me on the last day and say, uh, I did this and I did that. And he said, I will say to you, depart from me, for I never knew you. In other words, he says, the basis of judgment in the last day will be whether people have an intimate relationship with me or not. Now, that's either wonderfully true, or it's blasphemous. It's as stark as that. Claiming to forgive people and release them from the consequences of their sins uniquely on the basis of whether they have an intimate relationship with him or not. And fourthly, he accepted worship. For example, if I fell at your feet and said, My Lord and my God, I wonder what he would say. Well, Thomas fell at Jesus' feet and said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus rebuked him, just as we would rebuke someone if they they said it to us. But he rebuked him not for saying it, but for being so slow to say it he said, Thomas it's good that you've said this but it's better if you can say it having not seen me the height of arrogance unless it's true in other words, Jesus backed up what Paul was saying here by claiming to be deity come in human form and that answers the first big question that people ask is anyone there? could there be anyone behind the universe? The passage which strikes us, the the phrase that strikes us from this passage is that yes, there is someone, and his name is Jesus. As someone has said, if Jesus was not God, he deserves an Oscar. But he certainly acted the part out very well. And those of us who may not have committed our lives to Christ need to think very carefully about that statement of Jesus to start off with. He claims to be God. And you cannot therefore say of him, he is just a good moral teacher or a prophet because he claims much more. He will not let you escape from the question, what do you think of me? Do you believe I am God come in human form or a charlatan? Secondly, Paul goes on to argue that Jesus is not only unique in his his claims to be God in human form, but unique in how he related to creation. And in so doing, answers the question, why are we here? And in a very tightly argued passage, in verses 16 and 17, Paul uses four little phrases to highlight Jesus' uniqueness in relation to creation. He says first, in verse 16, everything is created by him. In other words, he's the agent of creation. Now this is important, because Paul is implying the creation is there, therefore not as a result of chance we are not here as a result of a gigantic accident but rather are the products of God's design there is a great mind behind creation and this mind is the mind of Christ secondly in verse 16 he says he is the goal of creation everything was created for him Now, once when I was trying to explain this to a group of students in Hungary, one young lady said to me, my mother says she's not going to believe in any God who's just created us so that we'll worship Him. Well, it's not quite as simple and straightforward as that. It's true that we were created in order to worship Christ, but we were also created as objects of His affection and His love. He wanted to show His love to us. So I said to this young girl, when you go home, ask your mother, Why did you bring me into the world? Did you bring me into the world so you would have someone to obey your commands, to do your bidding, or because you wanted a child to be the object of your affection? And I said, I'm sure she'll give you the second answer. Similarly, it is true that God created us in order to worship Him, but also as objects of His love and tender affection. Thirdly, the passage says He was created before all things. In other words, he's eternal, he is pre-existent, he's separate from the creation, which is different from the Hindu view of the gods who are part of the created order. Jesus is distinct and separate. And fourthly and lastly, in this tightly argued passage, Paul says he's the sustainer of all things in verse 17, that he holds all things together. Now this is important, especially in Scotland, because one of your great philosophers, uh, Hume, uh, was a deist, and uh, there were many like him in the 18th century. And their argument, essentially, was that the creation is rather like uh, a Swiss watch. It's wound up and let go, and there may have been a god there at the beginning, but he is distant now, He sat back in his armchair, and later philosophers even argued he may be dead. A deity who is disinterested in the creation to the extent that he may not be there anymore. This passage flatly denies that worldview by saying that Christ sustains the universe and the created order. So if you think there are problems in the environment or the created order or in the world that you observe, uh, just think again what it would be like if Christ refused to continue to sustain it. Literally, all chaos would be let loose. For what the passage says is that Christ not only created the universe, but he sustains it today, and we can thank him for that. So, that leads to this answer to the second question. Why are we here? We are here as his creation, as objects of his affection, and those who should respond in worship. Thirdly, Paul goes on to say, he's unique in relation to salvation. And again, in verses 14 and 20 to 22, he uses three phrases to highlight Jesus' distinctiveness in relation to the story that we heard earlier on About the need to be rescued from the consequences of our sins And he uses three key phrases Which help us to understand what he was doing When he was dying on the cross as our substitute in our place And the three key words are these First, he was dying to redeem us For Jesus said himself that men and women who did not know him were enslaved to sin. Sin is self-centeredness, life without God. This passage goes on to talk about people who are alienated or hostile from God, who, though they've been the recipients of God's good favor, refuse to accept it and turn their backs on Him. The Bible teaches us that Jesus came to die in the place of such people so that if they trust His death as their substitute, they can be redeemed or bought back from slavery. Let me talk about this word redemption for a moment What it essentially means to be set free The western world is influenced by two notions of freedom It's very important to understand this The first notion of freedom Comes from a period of history called the Enlightenment When philosophers argued about 250 years ago that man should be free to do exactly what he wants without any constraints. That is the viewpoint which dominates the thinking of much of the liberal media, newspapers, television, and many people in the Western world today. No limits, no inhibitions on our right to choose. We must have freedom to do what we want, perhaps except for cases where it may be deemed that we might hurt someone. But there are no absolutes, goes the argument. That's the view of freedom which dominates the way most people think in the Western world today. But there's a second notion of freedom, which comes from the scriptures. That is, freedom within limits. Let me try to illustrate. A fish is free when it is in water. It can swim through the oceans of the world. But as soon as you take the fish out of the water onto dry land, it dies when it is put in an environment for which it is not created. God gives us great capacity to choose We can choose which clothes we wear in the morning What food we eat, perhaps what car we drive But we are limited by our finiteness He has given us commands which should govern our behavior And guide us in the right direction Willfully and many men and women have rejected God's guidelines as seeing them as being restrictive And therefore have decided to try to live their life without reference to God And the Bible calls that sin and it leads to brokenness in many human beings' lives. But the Bible tells us that Christ died to liberate us. When we come to trust Him, when we turn to Him and accept Him as Saviour and Lord and accept His teaching, that actually doesn't spoil our life. It liberates us. It's the exact opposite of what many people say the Christian message is all about. It is liberating rather than constricted, rather than constrictive. And I remember quite strikingly when I was in South Africa a number of years ago, preaching about the liberty in Christ. And afterwards, a woman in her late 40s came on to me. There was a man in tow with her, and she said, "Um, uh, thank you for speaking about freedom this evening. I'd like to have that freedom in Christ that you spoke about. Uh, The thing is, I've left my husband. I'm living with this man here. These are my two teenage children. What do you think I should do? And I said, well, uh, I'm not saying that your marriage is not difficult, but God's plan is For us to really work at marriage to one person and stick at it. We know that uh, many marriages go through rough periods. But God commenced faithfulness in marriage. It's not good to leave your husband for this other man. You can imagine the other man was not very happy with me when I was saying this. He was a Cambridge professor of philosophy. Fortunately, he was a bit smaller than me. And uh, so he didn't take it any further on that particular occasion. But afterwards... Uh, I left the conversation and the lady wrote to me some months later when I was back in Wales and said this. I remember it off by heart. The letter was so striking. She said, I've left the man I was living with. I've gone back to my husband. My husband is a difficult man to live with. But we're working at it because I can see it's God's plan for faithfulness uh, in marriage. The man I was living with uh, says, I am mad. But I see that it was guilt that was binding me to him I am now gloriously and wondrously free And if it, is, if it is madness Then it is a very happy insanity To be in Christ Freedom Secondly, in the death of Christ In our place on the cross We have the opportunity for forgiveness of sin Or in verse, That's in verse 14 And in verse 22 uh, Paul uses the word blameless now this is an astonishing little phrase because it, because it implies that when God sees us despite our sinfulness He doesn't judge us but He transfers His judgment to Jesus His Son who died in our place and we are reckoned as blameless or we escape the consequences of our sins. I always remember when we were living in Paris listening to a BBC World Service series on sin you'd never hear it today this was 20 years ago and there was a, a famous humanist, a lady called Marganita Lasky, being interviewed. And uh, she said, "Of course, she didn't believe in the existence of God, but she was a very honest woman, and I appreciated her honesty. She said in the interview, What I envy about you Christians is your forgiveness. Because I do not believe in a God, I have no one to forgive me. She saw the issue very clearly. It's like Camus, the famous... French philosopher said, atheism is a very bitter pill, and I've swallowed it right through to the end. What a sad and pathetic statement. However, even though we may appreciate his honesty, he saw that you couldn't be indifferent about this one. No one else to forgive me if there's no God who is there. What God the Father does is he forgives us when he sees that we have trusted Christ. Who died in our place It's like this As someone has said Supposing I have a cassette tape in my chest And all the judgments I have made on other people During the course of my life The moral judgments The things I have done in secret Condemning other people Criticizing other people All those judgments are stored up On the cassette tape And on the day of judgment That cassette tape is played back And even by the judgments I have made on other people I fall short And I am condemned But God says God the Father says Because of what God the Son, Jesus Christ, has done on the cross, in dying in your place, He rips the cassette tape up, He casts it into the bin, and even perhaps He burns it. As if to say, I will remember your sins no more. Such is the wonder of the cross. Let me bring it home to you in some some other way. When I was speaking about the fact that God not only forgives sin, but as it were, willfully, deliberately, remembers it no more, when we trust Christ. Because that phrase, I will remember your sins, is mentioned three times in the Bible. So when God repeats the same phrase three times, you bet it's important. He says, I'll remember your sins no more. i remember your sins no more. i remember your sins no more. Once I was speaking about this in France, and a girl shouted out hallelujah. And uh, I was surprised because she came from an Anglican background and she was very quiet. Nothing against Anglicanism, sorry. I'm not criticizing Anglicanism there. But she came from a rather conservative quiet. She was an introvert. So I didn't want to embarrass her in the meeting. But three weeks later, she came to me and she said, You know that that passage says, I'll remember your sins no more. Do you think that when God wrote that, it applied to all sins? I said, sure. What's the problem? She said, well, seven years ago, I had an abortion. I came from a middle-class family. My mother pressurized me. I didn't know what to do. I went through with it. I've never been able to forgive myself. Do you think God can forgive me? I said, read the text once again. Does it say, I will remember your sins no more, in brackets, except for abortion? No. It says, I will remember your sins no more, full stop. No exceptions. Your problem is forgiving yourself. You cannot bring the child back. But in objective, eternal terms, God has not only forgiven you, but He treats you as if you have not sinned, only for one reason. For Christ has died for your sins. Or I think of the Dutch, missionary met. Uh, several years ago in Argentina when I was speaking about the grace of God how it covers all sin afterwards I went outside and it was a beautiful starlit night he came up to speak to me he said, touched me on the shoulder he said, thank you for speaking about the grace of God tonight he said, of course I've heard it many times before but when I hear about it this sheer mercy of God by which he forgives and as it were forgets our sin because of what Christ has done it touches me and moves me deeply I said, why is that? he said, well, during the second world war I was a member of the Hitler Youth. I did and I saw terrible things. Then in the 1950s, I was one of the first missionaries, helicoptered into Turian Jaya. I was involved in revival. One day I baptized 4,000 people. Such is the forgiveness of God, that He not only forgave my sins, but He used me in revival. Such is the profundity, the depth, the wonder, the greatness and the glory Of the grace and the forgiveness of God Which is found only in Christ You see when you hear stories like that When you hear something about the grace of God And the forgiving power of God Does it make you think sometimes That those of us who have been Christians For 30 or 40 years That maybe our senses have become dulled And we've lost just a little Of the sense of the wonder The greatness The glory The power The magnificence Of the grace And the redemptive power of God in Jesus Christ alone. And then he says in verses 20 and 22, On top of that, you have redemption, you have forgiveness. Then he says, you have been reconciled through Christ. Several years ago, there was a a true story of a young student in Thailand who left home at 18. He didn't get on with his parents, uh, as some teenagers don't. And uh, When he went to university, he stopped contact with his parents for 10 years. This was in the day before emails. Uh, but as he got older, he began to realize that parents, not so bad after all, as he began to see his own failings. So the pressure built up as he wanted to be reunited with his parents. And then one day, in the days when they sent telegrams, those of us who are older can remember those on the days we were married, he sent a telegram to his parents and said, I want to come home and be reconciled. Will you receive me? The house they lived in back down to a railway line. It's a true story. He said, if I'm accepted, please put a white handkerchief in the tree so that when the train passes, I know I'm welcomed. There's no white handkerchief. I know I'm rejected. There's no hope of reconciliation. And I don't, face, don't have to face rejection face to face. He didn't wait for a response. He caught the train. As he was coming nearer the home, he was sitting opposite a man with a shock of white hair. And he became increasingly agitated and nervous. So the elderly man said to him, what's the problem? He told him the story of how he had rejected his parents, but now he wanted to be reconciled. Then he bowed his head, part in fear, part in shame, and the train trundled on. It passed the bottom of the garden, and uh, he didn't look up, so fearful was he of rejection. But the old man looked, and he saw, he knocked him on the shoulder. He said, you can look up now. There isn't a white handkerchief in the tree. But there are three white blankets blowing in the wind. I think your parents want you back. You were reconciled. That's the message which screams to us from the New Testament. Has it captured your imagination? Has it captured your heart? Has it gripped your will? Has it moved you in wonder and thanksgiving to the God the Father who has sent Christ in all his glorious uniqueness? To show us what God is like. To demonstrate the creator of the universe. And also to deal with our salvation. Well, fourthly and finally, Christ is unique in another sense. He's unique in relation to resurrection. Just one phrase here. A strange little phrase. It's a Hebraism. A manner of speech in the Hebrew language. In verse 18, where he speaks of Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. Implying that... Jesus' resurrection from the dead was special. And indeed it was. Because if you go to Saudi Arabia, you can find the grave of Muhammad. If you go to India, you can find the grave of Buddha. If you go to China, you can find the grave of Confucius. But if you go to Jerusalem, you find an empty tomb. But Jesus Christ alone claims to be risen from the dead. And that in itself should grip our imagination and force us to ask the question... Could this be true? For if it is true It is the greatest fact in the history Of the universe And I must respond to it That Christ is risen from the dead It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ Which gives us hope of eternal life For those of us who have lost children It gives us the hope of reuniting As I have with my daughter For those of us who have lost loved ones Who trusted Christ It gives us the hope of being with them in eternity But most of all It gives us the assurance of being with Christ in God for eternity. That's why Martin Luther King, when he died, his wife Coretta Scott King said, they ended his earthly life with one bullet, but not all the bullets in all the arsenals in all the world can end his eternal existence, for my husband is with God. Or I think of John Penry, executed in 1596 in South Wales for going to a meeting like this. The night before he died, said to his wife, I have been your husband for a season but i will be your brother for eternity sounds glib unless you believe there's an eternal where christ eternity where christ dwells in heaven where you will meet him one day if you don't believe this what are your alternatives you need to face that question if you do not believe jesus is risen from the dead and gives us hope of eternal life then you are left of all men and women desolate because death there's no hope beyond it and that's, that's the, the dilemma of most of the great philosophers of the 20th century You read them, Camus, Sartre and others They had no answer to the problem of suffering or death The Bible's answer to it is found uniquely in the resurrection of Jesus Christ It doesn't pass over the grief of losing a loved one So uh, a lady uh, who was married to Henry Who mar- worked for the Missionary Aviation Fellowship When his plane went down and crashed She gave a beautiful testimony Which is the Christian response to suffering She said When I heard that my husband Henry's plane had gone down My heart broke into a million pieces Christians do grieve But at the same time I'm comforted by the fact That he's looking into the face of Christ For whom he lived And he died That's the Christian balance We don't play down the significance of grief The loss of a loved one But we are comforted and strengthened and buoyed up by the hope of the gospel and that answers the fourth big question that people have is there hope for the future? so this passage is a remarkable passage because it answers the four big questions people have at the same time as pointing to the uniqueness of Christ he was unique in his claims for deity unique in relation to creation salvation and resurrection well when we hear of the uniqueness of Christ we really must respond we cannot remain indifferent we cannot say it doesn't matter and so what are the responses that we have coming up here the first is for Christians we should turn aside in worship and wonder and if our hearts have grown cold maybe because we've had some knocks in life because we've even had some difficulties in the last week suffering family members, unemployment or problems, maybe we need to turn to God and say, Lord, please touch my mind and my senses and give me a fresh sense of wonder at the greatness, the glory, the profundity, the depth of the gospel and the person of Christ and all that he's done for me. I remember a friend of mine who was a Baptist minister, he said on one occasion, didn't he ever get depressed? I said, why do you ask? He said, oh, sometimes there's so many tensions in my church, I feel like giving up. I said, what do you do? He said, I go for a, day away, for a day on my own. I just take the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. I read them for myself through the day and I ask myself a simple question. Who is it that I'm committed to? And it's the person of Christ. He said, I pray a simple prayer and it's this. Heavenly Father, as I read the words of Christ in the Gospel... Please fill my mind and senses with a fresh love for the person of Christ. It never fails to touch me. Have we grown cold? Have we lost that sense of wonder? Well, for the Christian, maybe that today you need to turn aside and ask God the Father to restore it for you. And lastly, for some of us, it may be we've never bowed and trusted this unique Christ, unique in his claims to deity, unique in his relation to creation, to redemption, and to resurrection, and to hope. Some people come to church for many years, even. Some only come once or twice. But they've never realized the profundity and the power of the claims of Christ. There was a famous Christian leader, Francis Schaeffer, some years ago, was in a debate on television with a very liberal cleric who had lost his faith. And they got into a debate on the television and uh, this cleric said to Schaefer, well, what is a Christian then? And Shafer said, someone who bows twice. He said, what do you mean someone who's bowed twice? He said, someone who's bowed once in acknowledging that God is there. But you have to bow the second time in yielding your life to the God who is there. It's not enough just to say it's true. You need to bow the second time in yielding your life to the one who is true and about whom these scriptures are written. Have you done it? If not, it's time today to turn aside quietly to him and say, Lord, become the Lord of my life just as you are the Lord of creation, just as you are the Lord of salvation, just as you are the Lord of hope and resurrection. Be my Lord and my Savior today. Turn and trust Him Do not delay And then when we've done that It is our responsibility and joy To go and tell it To live it To proclaim it To the ends of the earth But when we see that this is true We don't ask the question What must I give up We ask What can I give up So that this message Which is the greatest In the history of the world Can be proclaimed No matter what the cost To the ends of the earth That's our privilege and joy. Let's pray.